Good morning, my couriers and ives. <laughs> yes, I'm running out of blank and blank introductions. Welcome to episode 5 of Menplaining Mensanity. Should not be called that. Episode 5, titled Bringing It All Together. Coming at you at 2.12am on Wednesday morning, which is four days later than I was supposed to post another episode, which goes toward an unfortunate truth that I am losing steam on this project and so I don't want to abandon it but I may have to modify my approach. This episode will be my first formal attempt, maybe possibly my last <laughs> formal attempt at tightening the sprawl of ideas and topics I've talked at you about for the last four episodes in the hopes of approaching an overarching framework that has hopefully the approximate consistency of a medicinal jelly. Uh, that's my aim, anyways. But first, Nostradamus, why do people like the reality series Real Housewives? People like Real Housewives because Real Housewives makes Vanderpump rules look like Michael Apted's 7-Up documentary series. Wait, but Nostradamus, I watch Vanderpump rules. Oh, well, my declaration stands. Okay, well, can we talk in depth about Vanderpump Rules so I can convince you otherwise? Sure. Let's do an episode about Vanderpump Rules sometime. Alright. So, that conversation with Nostradamus took place before multiple members of the Vanderpump Rules crew were cancelled for uh, racist behaviors. But I didn't, I wanted to leave it there because that something really strange happened. It's not that strange. I, you know, was in the middle of watching the, the latest season of Vanderpump Rules, and uh, this stuff happened where, you know, some of the cast, cast members were fired, and I just couldn't watch the show anymore. I, because the show is very superficial, on, uh, of course, but in comparison to the very real things that had happened, to sit there and continue to watch them talking about, you know, their frivolous lives, I just, I don't know, I just couldn't bear it. It was hard because I, I do have friends who, who are very much into it and it kind of takes that thing that we used to talk, talk about away from us and um, that's how it's got to be sometimes though. I'm going to just deliver a quick amusing note about mensa. In Spanish, the word mensa is slang for stupid. Uh, apparently some mensans bristle at that because it also means table in Latin and that's you know what the founders meant it to mean. Uh, I can see a connection between table and stupid, but mostly I just think this is a lovely confluence of meanings, partly because, as we've touched on multiple times, it's ironic that a high IQ society is so stupid in some ways. I wonder if clearly emotionally stunted mensons would try to deny that they're emotionally stunted. Probably. For the record, I'm emotionally stunted. Uh, anyway, on to our main topic. This entire podcast, I think, was... The aim of it was to make an excuse or have an explanation. For me, there isn't much of a difference between an explanation and an excuse. Um, I kind of like to operate from this idea that we do and believe basically whatever we want and then construct our rationale as a justification afterwards. The vast majority of, our, of, of what people do, I think, is, can be categorized that way. Perhaps that's too much, but anyway, so 
because of that, uh, this, this idea of first philosophy, the, the kind of early development of Western philosophy, Descartes, um, you know, Plato, uh, and on and on for quite some time, this idea that we can start from a vacuum and sort of deduce these ideas that must be true about reality. I, I've always thought that's flawed. It, it seems impossible to me since there are so many conditions that come with consciousness that prevent us from being truly objective. At a certain deep level, I cannot be sure of any of this, and that is the nature of consciousness. I suppose even the notion that consciousness necessarily limits our perceptions might be something that is uncertain, which kind of brings us full circle. But uh, I do think it's important to try. As humans, it's, it's commonly said that we're cursed to see patterns where there are none and, and see binary relationships instead of complexity. But I, I want to believe that even when we collapse into binary thought, which... Uh, you'll find that I do quite often. We are just talking about the extremes on the spectrum. By doing so, we define a kind of right side and a left side, which then informs all that's in between. Specifically, in our concern, uh, most media is probably not pure art or pure shit entertainment. Rather, most media is probably uh, some sort of hybrid. In fact, I would say that all of this I is necessarily limiting in so many ways. If you've ever read uh, a book called Flatlands, uh, I believe it's called Flatlands, a, a romance of mathematics, something like that. It's, it's a cute short read. I uh, highly recommend it. It's kind of about what one-dimensional beings would think two-dimensional things look like and what two-dimensional beings would, uh, how they would see three-dimensional objects. And in that vein, I think everything that I talk about is just kind of a glimpse into, into some larger idea that, that I am failing to fully grasp, and, and maybe, maybe we can't grasp that idea. So I, I thought this example or explanation might help a little bit with understanding where I'm coming from. I see this podcast as more of a story than a thesis. The difference being a thesis is compartmentalized, highly technical, you know, hopefully structured, organized, and as comprehensive as can be, a story, in contrast, when not reduced to a maxim, is a series of descriptions and thoughts that create reoccurrence. Sometimes they call it callback in, in media. Reoccurrence, parallels, and a general sense, not so pointed, I suppose. There's a saying in Zen Buddhism that the aim of Zen Buddhism, although it is sometimes spoken of explicitly, uh, some form of enlighten enlightenment, uh, is often pretty elusive. And the explanations that I find most informative are never the ones where they put their finger right on it and say, this is the aim. They're always kind of, they call pointing at the moon, sort of pointing in the general direction of something, uh, saying it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, but never saying it is that. Because once you say something is that, you put yourself in a, in a very, uh, I would say, too certain a position a position uh, too certain for a human to be in. That, that's kind of how I, I see this podcast. Well, another important thing I should have mentioned when I first started talking about all this media theory, <laughs> and it's a, a big problem that I didn't mention this at first, is that everything I say uh, about media, it, it's aimed at other people who are interested in deep thinking about media often and creating it. These, these people will always be in the minority uh, unless there's some massive change in, in world valuation. 
That's why, like I, I mentioned Rudolf Otto in the previous episode, who was a Christian theologian who said, you know, either you understand the experience of, of God or, or you don't. And, and if you don't, then it's going to be very hard to explain, uh, as it has proven to be so far for me and this project. At the same time, uh, although I think it, it is then unfair to say that I'm passing too much judgment, since I'm limiting the perspective to other wannabe artists, there's also an implication to your taste. Uh, and it seems people, maybe, you know, I would say most people, uh, are well acquainted with, with freedom in, in the developed world, but, but not the implications and costs of it. And, and so it is with art. So if you're not a creative, if you're not spending a lot of time thinking about and watching and reading and wanting to make it yourself, that's okay. But I, I probably won't have as much to talk to you about as, as it, compared to as if you were, which, which that's all perfectly fine and natural. However, if you're not a creative, which means that, that term creative, let me try to define it a little bit better first. It, what I'm trying to say is it means that you're an expert in, in a particular field. And as an expert, you would naturally be drawn to how to make that thing. How does it work? How do you make it? So if you're not a creative and you think all media is of the same or similar value, or you think I'm being too hierarchical about it, gosh, this is going to sound bad. You would probably be wrong because you don't have the expertise in the first place to say so. And it is not simply a matter of, of this vacuous thing called taste. It's a matter of doing something so much that you can tell when something is rotten. You have a better sense of the quality of something because you're well-versed in it. In the same way that if you drink a lot of wine, you'll be better at telling when it's bad wine. Not everyone is or can be a sommelier, but one should tend to trust the opinion of a sommelier when it comes to wine. So basically, I, I'm trying to sort of restrict some of the very broad statements I've been making. And... In the last episode, I talked about one of the core concepts of modern religious scholarship is this idea that you don't so much talk about what the thing about the truth value of what, what other things other people believe. You more look into how it affects their lives. And so I'm not saying there's a capital O objective art that's great and then you know shitty entertainment that's horrible. It depends who you are. If you are, like I said, if you're someone in it, then you're going to have a more refined understanding of those divisions than if you're someone who doesn't care to be or isn't yet in it. And I'm not saying there's anything objective, objectively better about people who are in it and people who aren't. All I'm saying is uh, I'm a certain kind of person, and I would have a lot more to talk to you about and get along with you a lot better if you had the same interests I do. And I understand not, not everyone does, and that's okay. I, I do want to apply some, mention some correctives to my last episode because I, so I want to make up for how much I put Christianity down last episode in addition to some other things that I kind of marginalized and, and realized I shouldn't have. But I want to mention a, a sermon called uh, The Sermon of the Pores, P-O-O-R-S, by the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart. Uh, he's an excellent example of how even something supposedly restrictive like Christianity, you know, among the world religions, it's kind of, uh, what would you call it, 
the the run of the other <laughs> gets picked on frequently. Um, but Christianity can actually be interpreted in a mystical way, meaning the focus is on learning about the God that is in all of this, rather than the God that's sitting up there. I suppose some might say that's the Holy Spirit, the one that's in us. But anyway, the Sermon of the Pores is, is really complicated, uh, and this is a disservice to it. But my reading of it is basically this. There are good people who do good things, and that is, they're great, that's great. There are also people like the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or Gandhi who take that even further. And then there are people who exhaustively apply the idea of spiritual poverty in a way that basically eliminates the sense of selfhood. And this is the kind of enlightenment that is rare and what I try to seek in everything. Uh, it's important to be good in every sense, top to bottom, simple deeds, ideas, but, but that elusive unification with God and utter, and I mean utter, selflessness is my goal. It's really a complete destruction of the self. And, and good art gets you closer to that. And the way that I've been talking about art, this should kind of gel with that. I mean, there's, there's good stuff, there's Oscar stuff, and then there's just blow you away stuff. Now, Eckhart emphasizes that this does not imply a hierarchy. That is, all good children of God are worthy, but just in different ways. So, however, again, to say that the quality of a basic good and the quality of spiritual poverty is not the same, and to pull all good people into one box is like pulling all media into one box. They just don't fit in the box like that. So, my aim today is to arrive at a dynamic worldview that is inclusive but incisive. Often we find that in an effort to be fully inclusive in the world of ideas, one must allow for shitty things. A contemporary example of an overly inclusive system would be Facebook. <laughs> and if in reaction to something like that, we might try to refine too much in the other direction, then we get something like Weibo, which is China's state-controlled social network, which ends up being too exclusive or restrictive. So I'm looking for a kind of balance, a balance that is as far from neutral as I can get because the balance I speak of is not neutrality. It's just not going too far in one direction for too long. In other words, our balance is the absence of staticness. If you stand still at either extreme or, or even right in the middle permanently, you're static. Now, if you flow back and forth while maintaining a nimble touch on as many points as you can, you're dynamic. Similarly, you may have heard the aphorism, moderation in all things. I've always understood that to include moderation of moderation itself. And moderating moderation means getting into the thick of it sometimes. When 9-11 happened, I remember there was an engineer in our building who shrugged and said it didn't really affect him and he was nonplussed. That is what happens when we obsessively pursue a perverse neutrality. And it's no coincidence that that man was an engineer. As we've discussed, too much logos uh, is likely to lead you down the path of blind neutrality. But also, yes, too little logos makes you a um, not all there new age type, for lack of a better term. Where does this balance live then? Here are some places where you might find it in greater proportion. Thin places, now that's a, uh, I believe that term uh, tends to come from Christianity. They are actually physical places where the, the barrier between man and God is supposed to be not as wide 
And it's a really bad example, but like Stonehenge or something. But this idea of being on the border of the edge of something is really crucial to, to the art I value and, and to the things that interest me. Um, other things that, that are in this kind of exciting area, uh, queerness. You know, we, uh, my wife and I are big fans of Drag Race, uh, and as we put it, we really like watching people get really, really good at really weird things. There's something to a small group of disempowered people developing kind of an amazing skill. Same with pro wrestling, frankly. I know I, I've been dropping hints that I enjoy pro, pro wrestling kind of at the, at the end of every episode. I will say some, something that you probably thought was nonsense, and, and it is. But they're all wrestling references, and uh, you know, I, I won't go <laughs> into it too much. But uh, for me, the difference isn't that, that large between Drag Race and pro wrestling. They both play with stereotypes and toy with the viewer's expectations only to subvert those expectations kind of shake you out of a certain kind of complacency. Um, it's funny to me that, that Drag Race is getting so much more popular, but wrestling's always been, well, once again, rental voter. You know, I, I guess it kind of makes sense, though, for some other reason. Anyway, uh, a couple other places you might find this exciting area. Uh, I, I think a lot about that, that passage that the meek shall inherit the earth. It's wherever the meek are, you know, you'll find these same places. Musical theater is actually a pretty fairly rare interest uh, in my understanding. I never really cared for it. I mean, you know, I, I had smidgens of interest in it, but uh, my wife is, is, is obsessed. And uh, she recently made the connection, too, that, that, that musicals are a minority of people who get really good at something that a lot of people think is pretty weird. Um, where else? True geeks. Uh, what I mean by that is not these kids who liked Marvel movies and then grew up to make Marvel movies. That actually takes something that was a kind of power for a uh, marginalized group and converts it into the into a oppressive majority phenomenon, which is actually really why I have such a problem with, with, with modern comic book movies. I think the, the power that they had when we were kids and, and we, we weren't popular, and we were bullied, and so we found solace in this odd little hobby. It's become, uh, I guess I would say, broified, and for sure, you see a bro wearing a shirt of something that you used to prize as something unique and, and uh, important to, to your, your specific and strange identity. You see a bro wearing that. Uh, it's time to move on. Now, a corrective for last episode's treatment of academic fields. Uh, this is one of the more uh, the things I'm more embarrassed about saying last time. Uh, I said that literature, as squishy as it is, is restricted by the same overly analytical tendency that all of academia suffers from, with the exception of religious studies. And of course I would say that, because everyone who's whatever major says that major is the best one. Of course that was all too much. Most fields attack themselves in some fashion. That is, most fields develop something approximating a postmodern or absurdist perspective. What I'm talking about is an aggressive confrontation with settled concepts that threaten to destabilize the entirety of a field. Some fields see it more than others. Uh, I would, would probably claim that it happens more often in 
in sort of the arts more than it does in the more uh, technical fields, but, but most are fully capable of, of that kind of deep questioning, uh, even the sciences. Uh, we've long known that the behavior of, of very, very small things defies standard model of Einstein, which very, very impressive, you know, but, but we're finding that, that it's limited. To move toward a more comprehensive model you know, always requires a rejection of some of the core elements of a classical model, which is similar to the evolution of religious studies I described last episode. I like the ones that do it a lot, uh, as the danger in those that do it relatively rarely is that practitioners become harmfully certain. It seems this is more common the more applied the field is, since application requires a specificity that masks the core complexities of the pure field from which the application emanates. For instance, we have the aforementioned spooky behavior of quantum particles, but if you apply physics to the production of a car chassis, well, that's not so spooky, and, and the mind becomes inert and relatively inflexible. The scariest part of this is that that inertia can then spread to a person's worldview, no longer limited to applied chassis design, but calcifying everything that the person thinks about. And this is what, what happens in the atheist problem wherein a modern secular academic transfers perceived certainty about, say, logic or the sciences to a religion and ends up making all kinds of very certain observations about, say, the existence of God. Uh, this is why I generally prefer fiction over nonfiction, though, you know, surely part of that is just mere bias. Uh, a good piece of fiction will defy a too rigid reduction into a core thesis, whereas a piece of nonfiction is basically a thesis with tassels. I'd argue that the production of nonfiction is more mechanical. Uh, a robot would be better at it, although those robots are getting crazy these days. That's also why a painstakingly researched multi-volume nonfiction work may require a larger quantity of work. A piece of good fiction requires work of an entirely different quality, a kind of work that robots used to not be so good at these days. Once again, I, I'm not quite sure. I want to circle back around to something from the first episode, which is why I, this is, which is, uh, why I respect hipsters. Let's define hipsters as people who avoid things that are commonplace or commonly enjoyed, and for that reason only, uh, that everyone else is doing it so they do not want to do it, or like it. That attitude is put down and uh, derided, because the idea that novelty alone is an indicator of worthiness is not a popular idea. But instinctually, we abide by that standard all the time. We always look for newness and uniqueness and value it highly. But when we see someone put, into, put it into practice, uh, put this idea of seeking newness and uniqueness into practice like hipsters do, they're somehow annoying or wrong? It makes about as much sense as why the word novelty has such a negative connotation, while the word novel has a positive one. Sure, a hipster is not always right that a popular thing lacks value. It's possible, it's just unlikely. So I will always trust a hipster's opinion more than an average person because it means they're observant and interested in novelty. Now I realize that people view that as a kind of empty novelty, but the point of all this is to say it might seem that hipsters are grasping at straws, but they get a handful of straws most of the time, more straws than an average non-hipster would. So similar to, my, to what I mentioned before, the kind of the paying attention to the meat. That is, generally, listening to the experiences and thoughts of a minority is a strong indicator of what's next for, for society or art or anything. 
you know, so long as that minority isn't a majority in a problematic way, which is maybe a topic for another time. Um, that's what they call intersectionality, which makes all this much more complex, as you can always add more dimensions to evaluating what is quote-unquote a minority construct. So I, d I don't think that uh, people who have bad taste in media are, are quote-unquote wrong. Within the context of their relative experience, of course their choices make sense. But the idea that all choices have the same consequences is what I have a problem with. Uh, a child can decide to learn programming or football. They're both somewhat worthwhile, worth worthwhile pursuits. But one involves a greater chance of multifaceted development. And so it is with more challenging media. You can hate it, and you can say it's boring, but you can't deny it's more challenging, and thus will move media forward dynamically and more effectively than the same old stuff, the same old unchallenging media. I was, I've been reminded of, of this idea a lot recently because you, you probably have heard, uh, you know, if you're paying attention to what's going on now, this idea that, gee, you know, with, with all the disagreement going on, about protests and our the current political climate. Well, uh, can't we? Can I just stay out of it? I mean, I don't want to be political. And it used to be that that was allowed, that a person could say, "Hey, I believe in something else. Let's all agree to disagree and go our separate ra ways and stop talking about this." The cool thing about what's happening now is people are becoming aware that when you stake out a position, any position, including neutrality, there are implications. In this specific case, I mean, you, you probably already know this, but the, being neutral about the Floyd incident is tacitly supporting the continuation of more of those incidents. And in that same way, when I'm talking about media, people will often say, hey, well, well I like this thing, or I don't really want to talk about media like that, so you know, I'm going to stay out of it, I'm, I'm going to take a position where everything relatively means, this, like, has the same value, and, you know, uh, Big Bang Theory is as good as, you know, Devs, or, or Devs wasn't that great, but it was better than the Big Bang Theory. But, but when you say that, you are actually saying that there is, that it is absolutely relative, that there is no evaluation, and are tacitly supporting a chaotic, meaningless realm of, of consuming art and entertainment. It's uh, kind of sad. I mean, I think especially for someone who, who takes it as seriously, and I guess what I mean by takes it as seriously is spends as much time thinking and, and engaging in it. And I guess what I'm saying is I if you want to not spend time thinking about it, or if you want to just say it's all relative, that that's totally fine. You're, you're just... You know, I think it means something that people who create it and are experts in it do not think that. It's with anything, anything. If you become an expert in it, of course you're going to be particular about what is good and what's you know not good within that realm. And I'm just trying to bring media into that conversation. I don't. I think it's it's very often hinted at. I was just listening to a podcast today, uh, in fact, about uh, the show Dead where they were saying that, oh, the Rotten Tomatoes rating, if it's too high, it actually means something's pretty bad. Because for something to actually be good, you know, a good chunk of people have to dislike it. It's got to be something new and challenging. So, of course, 
of course there are going to be a lot of dealers who, who look at it and say, oh, this is trying to get me to think beyond what I already know. I don't like this. And so uh, it tends to be uh, that when we look up what the shows we think are valuable or rated, they hang out around 60 or 70 percent. And for us, that's always a good sign. You know, things like Star Wars get 100 percent. Of course, that's Shrek. <laughs> Sorry. Gosh, I hope that's it for, for now. Uh, I, I do have an interview with the first Manson I met. His name's Joe. And let me run through a quick list of the things we talked about. Uh, very roughly, we briefly discussed protests, the, the pro current protest climate on Facebook. Uh, we talk about how we created a kind of subgroup within Mensa and how that, um, among that group, there was a lot of infighting and actually people who can't be in the same room with people anymore. Uh, we discuss the nature of ignorance and judging and dealing with other people who have very different opinions than you do. We talk about art bargaining with God, which, you know, I have to just comment here. So Joe and I talk about how a person can sort of try to think as if God would have thought and to kind of make judgments about, you know, our responsibility to be religious or not and what a, what a God, if, if he or she did exist, would be like. You know, I'd like to think that we both understand that at a very basic level, that's extremely speculative, like more speculative than anything else we've talked about. And I cut this part out of the interview, but I asked him about the, the core problem of what's called theogeny, which is the idea that, that God can't possibly be all good and all powerful. It's either or. If he's all powerful, he's not all good. If he's all, if he's all good, he's not all powerful. And Joe kind of bristled at that idea because he said it relies too much on human definitions of good and powerful, which, which I agree with. But, but if that's the case, everything we talked about regarding God and sort of what God expects of us is it's all it's all just tainted. You know, it's it's a fun thought experiment, but I don't know how much more than that it is. Uh, so anyway, we, we talk a little bit about my, my fear of getting doxxed if I if I post this podcast, you know, in a more visible place. Uh, we discuss how we met, just kind of a meet our meet cute story. I talk a little bit about what, what I call lowest common denominator entertainment. Uh, we both like pro wrestling, believe it or not. So we discussed that very briefly, I promise. And then um, just to close out pretty abruptly, uh, we'll talk about cultural zeitgeist and the effect it has on the media of an age. So you're saying about the uh, protests? Well, not just protests. The, uh, the, the, the latest goings on, yeah, I've had to do a lot of research looking stuff online and, and uh, responding to various things via Facebook and, you know, I've kind of written some kind of position papers here and there. just did one very early this morning, in fact. Um, for, for the yeah. newspaper? Or? No, no, just, just via Facebook. The, the post that I saw this morning was uh, by uh, one of the guys from my, one of my uh, high school classmates. And, no, a lot of, it was a Catholic high school, so, yeah, it's no surprise a lot of them are religious, these guys. I'm not. Never was. But anyway, he said, "Oh, as, as far as uh, the whole, you know, question about you know Black Lives Matter and this and that or the other, it's like uh, really, you know, this has been decided. This was decided, you know, two thousand years ago when uh, Jesus died on the cross for, you know, <laughs> for, for 
for all, everybody for all for all lives, you know, everybody matters. And I looked at that and I thought, man, that's pure dependent on a whole lot of specific skills. <laughs> and um, I just I wrote a really long response about why that's not relevant. Yeah. It's, you've got this, you know, religious religion specific deal. It's like, okay, it's a nice allegory, but you know, it's really not the point. Facebook is a blessing and a curse. Uh, yeah. I'm not, you know, there's no money to pay me for anything, so I'm not working at the moment. But mm. when when I was, you know, I, I, I can't get rid of Facebook because yeah. too much information comes through. You know, sometimes I even get leads on stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've kind of learned to pick my battles. And most of the time, the things I see, I just let go by because I think, okay, who's going to benefit from this? If they're not listening, they're not going to benefit. Anybody who already knows the story doesn't need to, to see me explain it yet again because they don't need confirmation of what they already yeah. So most of the time I just let it go. Well, you know, you never know what, what, how, how people interpret silence. I'm willing to bet that an awful lot of them, when they see that you don't respond, they think, oh, I guess I told him. And then I think, you know what? I don't care what you think. It's not important. It doesn't matter. Think whatever yeah. you like. And still, you're the fool in the room. You're the double fool for thinking that your, you know, your, your illogical argument actually left me at a loss. Is that what you're doing when, when you get quiet at, at when we're meeting in person with the group? <laughs> well, um, what's this meeting? <laughs> well, I don't think this is what's happening. But but I just sometimes, you know, and this is natural. Everyone does it. But sometimes, you know, when we're meeting in person with, with some other people, I'll notice sometimes you'll kind of get quiet for a while. That might just be you giving the other parties in the state for sure. Haven't you ever thought that Larry said anything that <laughs> was uh, counterfactual? Larry? Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, sorry, Ed. Ed? Yeah, I guess either one, really. It, yeah, and that's why we we decided to, for the pizza night, maybe a rest in peace, that we would not discuss but certainly, maybe religion, but definitely the pol political uh, topics were off limits. And, um, but, you know, he's also, well, of course, he is a Trump supporter, which is some, some great thing. I don't understand that. But he also is a climate change denier. Right. For a long time. You know, I mean, for, for as, long as, as long as I've known him, he, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I challenged anyone, you know, to come up with evidence. Yeah. I mean, if they had evidence, they <laughs> know, you know? And it's like, well, it depends, I guess, on what you consider evidence. It's like, yeah, that, and, well, it is interesting. One thing that makes it easy for me to stay on good terms with Ed, you know, is that I'm, I'm not educated enough about those controversial issues mm -hmm. to get as angry as Jason and, and Mike. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you were there that one night. We would have been we would have been damn near 10 years ago now when uh, we were at the Skin Pizza, I, I think it was, and Ed, Ed and, and Michael were there too. And they got in, uh, into the discussion about the Constitution. Yeah. Right? Were you there? Uh, no, I don't think so. And uh, you know, Michael's father was professor of government, I think, at Sac State for many years. Hmm. And I guess I guess he was a constitutional expert. And apparently, at least what according to how Michael represented himself, 
Mike knows a shitload about the Constitution too. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ed was was saying, well, you know, he's talking about the the the, uh, the use of government, its purposes, and, and, the, and the Constitution, and and I, he said something to the effect that, well, you know, the uh, well, the Constitution is set up so that it, it, it so that the government doesn't run our lives, you know, that it's got its place <laughs> and all that. And Michael Reagan said, um, no, you know, that's not what's going on. They started talking about certain amendments. And, and Michael, actually, he got really heated, you know, <laughs> and he was saying, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think Ed probably made the, the, the great mistake of asking him if he'd read the Constitution. I mean, he, well, have you read it? Have you read the Constitution? Like, um, he said, yeah, yeah, I have many times. And not only that, my father was a constitutional scholar and probably knows the government, so I'm pretty damn familiar with it. And things that really, you know, that he felt really insulted, which is, yeah. you can't do. You know, you can't let that shit get to you because Ed wasn't saying it in a way, you know, he's not that, Ed is not that goofy. You know, he's not that <laughs> If he really wanted to insult you, you know, he's not, he's just not slick enough to do it that way. I just don't see it. <laughs> And and Jason, you know, he he thoroughly pissed Jason off, but it was about economics, you yeah. know. So I don't know the Constitution. I don't know government. I'm I'm not truly schooled in that in that area. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know, uh, you know, about economics and all that. So I don't have the standing to be insulted, you know, and and incensed. Those guys know more than I do. And I guess he hit the right he pushed the right button, mm-hmm. and it just. It just pissed them off, you know. But yeah. so fortunately for me, we just steer clear of those uh, those topics, and uh, so I get along great with it. I think he's I think he's a, he's a terrific guy. He's just uh, he's just kind of curious. Uh, oh, Trump's done wonderful things. Yeah, <laughs> for America. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, what what has he done that's wrong? Like today, <laughs> to specify a time period. <laughs> He'd laugh. So the thing with Jason uh, and then the thing with Michael, those are separate occasions. Yeah. Oh yeah. boy. So Michael continued to come to those even after that. You know, could have been. I, I, I think he was kind of sporadic. Yeah. Um, again, you know, the unfortunate thing was that that last time when, when Jason and Ed went at it. it yeah. You know, they they can't they can't be in the same space anymore. Jason yeah. will you know Jason will not go if Ed's there. Mm. Ed so much you know because he wasn't the the uh, the instigator. He wasn't the aggressor. Mm. You know he's he's got no blood on his hands and so he's got nothing to lose. He's not the one who who really in my estimation anyway as the dumbfounded uh, onlooker. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think Ed really lost face whereas. Jason, how does Jason walk that back? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of continuums there. And look at, you know, people are, if you, were to, if you were to take, like, you know, measure people on, say, 20 different continua and measure various aspects of them, you know, they're all going to plot to different places and you're going to get a different profile for each person. And, you know, you, everybody's a mix of that kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, you kind of have to take them as, each person as a whole, and I ask myself, well, what's the cost-benefit analysis here to determine how I deal with this person? And if it's, if it's something like, if somebody's like a, uh, you know, really, really, um, 
extreme, radical, you know, rabid foaming at the mouth Nazis. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, you just want to, like, um, ostracize that person not having any, any, any contact. But short of something that extreme, you know, like, people are very complex, complex animals. Everybody, everybody starts in the tabula rasa. Everybody starts from this in some way, you know. <laughs> and you can learn as you go along, and your experiences shape you, and they, they color your view of things, they color how you process things, they color how you interpret things, and then, uh, you know, you go from there. And so there's no such thing as objective knowledge or information. You always got to spin on it somehow. Just for no other reason than it's coming from, an, from an, a, a subjective source that you really observe it. So I figured, you know what, as long as I know this person is based on the factual information that I have, that person thinks I'm just as wrong. Now, their, their information is, is, is flawed, their view of me is wrong, but it's just as real to that person. You know, my view, my wrongness is just as real to that person as their wrongness is to me, even though, right, they're not both valid views, <coughs> you know, objectively valid. I know the person's wrong, I know why, and I can, I can justify it, I can rationalize it, I can lay it out. That person can't do that, uh, or if the, the person can, then it would be done with faulty information. Mm -hmm. But be that as it may, well, you know, in, that person's, in that person's world, I'm the wrong one. So I'm thinking, well, okay, <clears throat> how is that person acting toward me, given the assumption in that person's mind that I'm wrong? Mm -hmm then you know, how, how would I want that person to treat me? Mm -hmm. uh, if, you start, if, you start, if you start getting like, what, um, infinitely regressing mirrors here, you know, and mm -hmm. when it's like, I'm thinking how that person thinks about me and how I think about how that person thinks about me and what yeah. they think about how what I think about that person, <laughs> you know, but it does start to do that where it's like, okay, all right, I, I know this person is wrong, is, 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 is misguided, but what does that mean? about yeah. or how I treat this person. Well, I'm just going to look at all the rest of what's there and say this person cannot be blamed for being ignorant about it at a certain level. He or she hasn't chosen to get enlightened. Well, I, I, really, I don't have enough information to judge why that is. And I'm not going to go there. Mm. just going to deal with this person the same way I deal with everybody else. And, and I, I do have occasional contact with this one guy who posts all this bullshit about, you know, anti-Obama and pro-Trump, and he's so, so very ignorant. But he's, you know, I've been in a car with him a few times, you know, on, you know, on the road. He's, uh, you know, he's a conservative, yeah, you know, he's, 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 he's been a hard worker here and there, and, and uh, he, you know, he works for his money and this and that. He, I can understand where he's coming from, you know, so I, re I respect his personhood, let's put it that way. I don't have to agree with everything he says to have to respect his dignity as a human. Mm -hmm. So even even the ones who just just really obviously just ignorant. Um, so two two thoughts. Uh, one is it's really interesting the sort of I guess philosophy laid out about dealing with people who have significantly different worldviews than your own. That's actually one of the core guidelines of like modern religious scholarship. And I think it's interesting that you just kind of came up with it on your own, sort of, <laughs> because it's a very important concept in, you know, comparative religion, which would make sense because, you know, you can't really 
go up to people who have a really good and tell them they're wrong about it and expect to have a constructive conversation? Well, you know, given that I'm an agnostic, I, you know, the religion thing is kind of like, okay, well, I can, I can understand the need for and the genesis of religious thought and um, construction. You know, and I was just thinking about this earlier today, as far as, there are so many people who are really religious, and they, they have faith, you know, and they're true believers. In my, in my, you know, my community, the Portuguese community, well, I mean, it's, you know, Catholic. Portuguese have been Catholic for many, many centuries. And a lot of them are, they're really religious, man. I, I, I guess, I don't know how, how it happened that I'm not. I'm starting to wonder about my actual DNA. <laughs> but, I mean, I've always been an, uh, an agnostic. Uh, but these people, I think... They have, they have faith. What does faith really mean? It's this thing, you know, where you can't really, you, you can't really know about God. You can't really know about a religion. Uh, you can't have that kind of knowledge, you know, certainty, you know, to your core. That, mm. oh, yeah, I know this is true. I know this is the true God. Yeah, well, you know, so, well, God, you know, God spoke to us, you know, to the Jews. The prophecy, the Bible, the the Bible, you weren't in there. Were you there 2,000 years ago and all that shit was going on when the guy was, like, you know, etching this shit in stone or how the fear wrote then? I don't know. <laughs> Using, like, you know, lamb's blood on, like, you know, whatever kind of parchment they had or something. It's like, you weren't there. You don't know what happened. So, you know, anyway. same, same with atheists, right? I mean, the certainty. Well, yeah, the arrogance of, of, of certitude. But I'm, then I'm thinking, okay, let's flip this around. Let's just turn everything on its head. Let's just, um, uh, let's, we're going to have to cover Neil deGrasse Tyson's fears while, as I say this. <laughs> like, let's just turn all of science on its head and say, well, maybe there is a thing called faith. Maybe there is, uh, Something you know, supernatural. Something that you know, if you that within your you know the, the incorporeal aspect of us, you know, call it a soul or whatever. You know, that part that that is immortal, extra mortal. That somehow a connection can be made to whatever whatever creator energy or being exists, or creators. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just assume that maybe that does happen, and that unless you have faith, right, mm-hmm. you can't understand. Well, just, I'll just assume, just for the sake of argument, that that actually can happen. Well, in that case, I must, be, I can be forgiven for not understanding or knowing because I don't have it. I don't have. I, I'm not privy to that, uh, to that experience. I'm yeah. not able to attain that level. And so, since I don't have it, then you know, I'm, I'm ignorant. So I'm, I'm like a child, right? I'm without sin. I'm like a child. I don't know. <laughs> So I, you know, hey, if that's the case, then okay. So you're gonna blame you're you are gonna hold me accountable though for not for not pursuing this to figure it out and to you know to get enlightened. Well, maybe you got me there. <laughs> but, but outside of that, beyond that, if you want to take it a step further, it's like, well, okay, I'm thinking, all right. So we've got this created being, and we're all, you know, we're all fruits fruits of the the. The, the creative loins of that being, and we're all made in his, his, her, it, their image, and all that, but if we don't comport ourselves well while we're on earth, 
then we we uh, then eternal damnation awaits us. Why even create it in the first place? <laughs> I give us free will. If you know we're gonna fuck up, it's like, well, who? That's on. It's like, like that's on you, bud. You created it. <laughs> you knew we were gonna fuck up. What did you expect? <laughs> Why didn't you make a serpent? Because that's boring. Gods can get bored. I don't know. I mean, you're around for all eternity. You know, I mean, it gets old after a while. But then if you've been around for eternity, it's like, how does that work? Hey, you should be in good by now. You've been doing it forever. It's, it's, well, it's, it's Trumpian because it's, it's management by, by fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make people afraid so that they'll be upstanding. Well, any, any god, you know, worth his, his salt, is, he's going to say, you know what? I mean, if I were a self-respecting god and I'm looking at people, oh, you're, we're going to worship, you know, like, hear, hear me, I'm the Lord my God. I don't want you to hear me. I want you to like me because you think I'm cool, right? <laughs> I want you to, like, I like what you've got to say. I like, I like chapter and verse, whatever the hell it was. That was really cool, and, I'm, and I'm, I can hang with that, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's like, not, not because the, the fire and brimstone part where it's like, well, okay. You know, I'm inviting you to follow this, but if you don't, oh, man, are you in trouble. It's like, no, no, no. You guys do yeah. whatever you want, you know? And if you, if you run and you kill people and everything, well, you know what? That's actually on me because I created all of it. Well, I want to go back to what you were saying before about how you are becoming more of a neutral participant in certain uh, sort of inflammatory arguments. I rarely know enough about either side of the argument to opine in a way that might not um, embarrass me later. But I mean, like, I, I'm more in the context of, you mentioned that in the Jason Ed argument, that Jason had, in your opinion, taken a little too far. But isn't there something to be said, especially in the context of what's happening now, that to be neutral about something like that is tacitly supporting people's continued ignorance about it. And what I'm saying is, Jason was drawing a line at what he believes to be right and wrong and, and really clearly placing himself on one side of it. So, Isn't that type of behavior sometimes required of people? Yeah, I guess you could argue that, at, well, at worst, not taking a position at worst helps the helps maintain the status quo by virtue of the fact that you're not resisting it. As the saying goes, you do you and I'll do me. That's a fucking cop-out term. I think it's just basically saying, you know, we'll, we'll agree to dis- disagree. But you see, I, like I say, I don't have a, a logical argument with, you know, if you're not actively resisting something, then you're tacitly accepting it. Okay, I don't have a logical argument with that. And, and I can see how, you know, like in World War II, right? People didn't resist. Yeah. Yeah. It started coming from one group after another. I didn't say anything for all that time. Finally, they came for me, and no one was left to defend me. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. it's not going to come to that. But yeah, I don't argue with that logic either. So you you uh, mentioned something earlier, how we think of other people and what they think of us, and how you said it becomes like a mere a regression. Do you think that that sort of iterative way that a person can think is more common among people in Mensa? Like the the facility with which you will think of that sort of strange meta unending kind of well i i don't know <clears throat> that's not something i've actually pondered i've been struggling with, with regard to this podcast because uh currently it has a very tiny viewership it's mostly something like three to four of my friends who will listen to it but i know it's a certain group of, of eskimos in barrow alaska 
I think I have a couple. I have a couple listens from Germany, so that's kind of cool. But I don't know who that is. Um, but <laughs> anyway, but I know that if I post this website on like the Mensa Facebook page or something like that, I'm going to get a lot of people coming listening to it, and probably a lot of them are going to get angry with me about some of the things I say. So I'm not. I'm conflicted because it would give me a wider what do you call it exposure, but it, it might be inviting some doxing. Well, but how, I mean, how likely is that? How how easy would it be for somebody to figure out who you are? I guess I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I've done everything I can to conceal who I am. You know, I try to, like, disconnect any link you could possibly make between the, the podcast and my own identity. Well, yeah, so then the question is, how likely is, is it that a hacker would be in your audience and would, and would take enough exception to what you said to actually go about trying to accomplish would it be the 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 content yeah yeah so one of the things i talk about a lot is uh i believe that i can make a cogent argument about this but i'll save that for now and just say that the vast majority of entertainment that's out there whether you're talking about music or television or film is is bad <laughs> um, and so, and a lot of the stuff is the most popular stuff. And so, when I come up to someone and say, "Hey, look, all that stuff you like," it's crap. This crap it's crap. And I'll tell them, "Look, that that's that stuff is lowest common denominator. It's junk food." Right, right. But exactly, and I make that actual allegory. I tell them it's it's akin to only eating McDonald's, but people bristle when they hear that. Naturally, because those are things they, they enjoy. Well, okay, so what did you expect? Right? They bristle. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like saying, hey, you stupid. Like the block happens where you're, you're a section of the proletariat. Yeah. I wanted you to tell the story of how we, how we first made contact, because I think it's a little amusing. <laughs> if I can remember, you had, yeah, I don't know, I guess you'd emailed me. Mm. I was in, in Mensa at the time, had gotten... We'd gotten a newsletter, I believe, mm -hmm. and in one section of the newsletter was a list of birthdays for that month. Mm -hmm. And we had all of people's names and then a numeral after <laughs> each name. Now, <laughs> m after my name, let's let's say it was let's say it was fifteen. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it was certainly in the teens. Mm -hmm. You had gotten a hold of me. I guess it was through email, and you said, "Oh, hi, Bill. Um, you know, uh, my name is uh, yada yada." And uh, I, I was just, you know, I'm kind of curious. You know, I'm kind of a younger person, and I was uh, curious about the kind of, you know, you from Mensa, and you know, you being, uh, you know, a young person. I was kind of wondering what, what, what the sorts of activities you think would would get more young people into Mensa because there are very few of them. Mm -hmm. And I kind of looked at that, and I thought, well, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" Uh, young, I'm like, you know, I'm well, 15 or something. How how old I was at the time, I probably. And so I think I I I I replied asking for some clarification, and he said, oh well, you know, I mean, I I saw you know your birthday, and you know you're you're 15. I, I, I said, nothing to do. No, um, no, those, those numerals after the names actually represent the day of the month of the birthday, not the age. And you had kind of like you know, that's one of those moments that me and Mensa. Say, um, you know, okay, now show me your card. Actually, yeah. You actually do have a Mensa card because now we're having doubts about it. So that's kind of a great part. That, that, that's my recollection of it. And, yeah. and I, I explained that, and you said, oh man, you know, I just don't, 
for secret. And then, you know, we just kind of chatted from there on. And um, I guess you're not disappointed that I wasn't pursued. Yeah, I actually, uh, probably a joke could be made about why I was trying to talk to a 15 year old. But <laughs> I don't need to know that. Oh, I wanted to ask you, I think you told me this before, but how exactly did you get admitted? Was it based on another test or did you just? As far as I can recall, back in the, um, oh, I guess it was the late 70s, you know, one of those infamous, you know, think you're, think you're smart enough for Mensa test came out in Reader's Digest, you know, <laughs> the sample test, you know, yeah. you have like 20 questions or something. Mm -hmm. I remember, I, I think for some time, you know, I had always felt that I was not average, you know, that I was different from a lot of people. And I don't exactly remember how I felt I was different, but I think I had that sense for quite some time. And I was like, hey, you know, I wonder if I really am smarter than the average bear. Or maybe I should try this test just, you know, for the case, just to Google, just to find out. And so I looked into it and, um, Pass and here's your IQ score on this chart or this scale, and here's your IQ, the other IQ score on this other scale. And I just made it, you know. I mean, I, I was like one or two points above the minimum to get mm -hmm. it. Maybe I'll get some respect then. Can you do a Bernie Sanders impression? Uh, not a very good one. <laughs> Would you would you consider yourself a creative person? Occasionally, you know, writing is a creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. It's 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 also you know it's largely, it's, I mean it's kind of mechanical too. You know, I mean there's a whole lot of you know, procedural things, right? It's, it's, it's a lot a lot of it's technical. You have mm -hmm. to know grammar. You have to like do things like spell a rhythm on a page. Of uh, <laughs> you need to be able to do that stuff to so function in such a thing. But you know, gathering the ideas, right? Even deciding where where you have to point your verbiage, how to express them, those are creative. I mean, you're creating something that wasn't there before. You're creating a, a mind work. Mm -hmm. uh, and photography, uh, even the kind that I've done, uh, mostly done in the last few years, new photography, you know, it's, it's always something different. Mm -hmm. uh, right? But the thing is, I have to be creative as hell, under pressure every time yeah I, I know that you're generally unwilling to make generalizations about mensum do you do you, have you seen a lot of creative occupations or behaviors among the ones you've met i i would say um i, I really only know a handful from from the local area and most of them do have have some creative skills not necessarily you know, it's, it's and generally not not a day job, not for a day job, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but on on the side. Um, kind of going back to something I briefly mentioned before, do you agree with the idea that that generally forms of entertainment that are extremely popular are often kind of um, still the lowest common denominator? Well, you know, it's all it's all bell curve. Uh, what's the old saying? Ninety percent, ninety-eight percent of anything is, is garbage. <laughs> I you know, I think that's a little extreme. Maybe ninety-six percent. <laughs> no, really, it's, that's that's way too extreme. Um, again, it's shades of gray. It's, everything's on a continuum. If we're talking visual media, mm -hmm. that's a little different. Uh, television, 
time. I'm really picky about coloring. The thing is, how, how much depth is involved? And, you know, if you're talking about so-called reality shows, which are anything but, it's kind of like uh, our so-called president, who acts like anything but a president. Uh, and how, how, what a coincidence. He was the reality show person. <laughs> how did that happen? Reality shows, you know, you know, it's all very, you know, just right, b baser level uh, attraction, and it's all fake. As you know, I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I used to be a WWE fan. I know that's fake too, but you know, when you really sit down, as I, as you as you do know, uh, and you watch what's actually happening, and you look at the choreography, how these people move, you know, these guys are supreme athletes. It's mm -hmm. just the amount of pounding they take, you know, and the, the moves and how they execute them. And a lot of those moves are very dangerous, and as we've seen, you know, with some injuries over the last few years, you know, one, one guy, uh, he, he sustained a severe concussion, you know, and he was, uh, he was in the hospital for quite some time, you know, and it takes a long time to recover from that because somebody dropped him on the, ap on the apron of the ring just the wrong way, you know. That, that stuff we do is very dangerous. It takes a lot of skill, and so... Although watching wrestling does does appeal to one's baser element, um, <laughs> you know, if you were watching it with a right view of mind and understanding, <laughs> it's a work of art, man. It is an art form. It's a performance, you know. Do you think you could apply that that framework to, you know, another reality reality show that's easier? The Apprentice. Let's just use that one. Do you think if you looked at The Apprentice in a certain way that you could evaluate it as a work of art of sorts? This brings to mind that I guess there's always been this same relationship. You know, a lot of just kind of fodder and then some really good stuff. All the way back. All the way back to the 60s. Anyway, sometimes I will encounter stuff that's, that's just been in syndication forever. It's, you know, it's going to be in syndication endless loops. And I look at this at them and I just wonder, you know, how in the hell did we ever used to watch this stuff and actually think it was great? So, you know, within a, you know, for a given era, you know, the overall mentality, I think, you know, it, 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 it changes over time. In successive time periods, you know, the, the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist evolves. Totally different zeitgeist in the 70s. Uh, so I guess, you know, even so in every era, you know, the, the, the standards change, but there's always, yeah, I think there's always a, a large percentage of you know, what's on offer mm -hmm. is is LCD, the lowest kind of catered to the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I guess the question is, you know, how what does that say? How is that even reflecting the the viewership? You know, mm -hmm. I guess it does because uh, you know when you take the you know you get the like that Nielsen uh, Nielsen figure. Uh, you know, then they look at the ratings. If, if the show doesn't have high enough ratings, right, money drives all that. If the show doesn't have high enough ratings, it doesn't last. So thank you once again to everyone who's been listening. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I'm not sure about the future of this podcast, but I'll be certain to let all three of you know. Um, I, I did mention in a previous episode that I was going to interview a female member of Mensa, which is something I am disappointed with myself for not getting done. The reason that particular person uh, has not been interviewed by me 
is that she does not think structural racism exists, and I can't deal with that right now. I think the interviews are actually the most time-consuming part of this. Uh, the amount of time it takes to edit them down is significant. And so I, I would think that if this survives, it, it really <laughs> will be me just talking at you. You know, honestly, that's what takes the least time to produce. But also, maybe it's not the most interesting part of this, I acknowledge. Um, anyway, until next time, be safe out there, guys. Be kind to each other. And I'll talk to you soon.